Hey, good everyone. Welcome back to the Heston Russell Voice of a Veteran podcast. This is another throwback episode to last year when I had a really enjoyable chat with Craig Harper from the U Project. Really, really enjoyable episode. This one was before the federal election and we really got into some fantastic mindset, sociology, psychology and everything else in between. Talking about our training regimes, motivating factors, leadership and all the rest. I'll let you have a listen. I really, really enjoyed this one. Again, the You Project with Craig Harper. Enjoy this episode. Eston, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Craig, Tiff, thank you so much from uh, 24 degrees up here in Brizzy. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Right. I, well, I thought it was about 12 or 13, and I just looked at the little uh, the little weather thing on my phone, and it's 18 in Melbourne, which is pretty much tropical for this time of year. So <laughs> uh, stop complaining, Harps. That's the story. Uh, how's Briz Vegas these days? Yeah, it's good. You know, I grew up here, and I just moved back here April last year, and I'm at a place called Newstead here at the Gasworks, and they've really done well, you know, activating the Brizzy River and so much development going on. It's a, it's got a good modern feel to it, eh? Where did you move back from? Uh, Sydney. So I spent most of my time living down in Sydney um, per my military career and what I sort of did for a couple of years after I got out from that. Now, rather than me banging on with something that I ripped off the internet, which I do have staring at me from the computer screen next to your face... Yep. Why don't you do us the honour and give us whatever, as much or as little as you want on the Heston Russell uh, kind of bio and then we can expand and go wherever we want because we have no rules here. We can even say fuck, so enjoy that. For sure. Who is he? All right. Uh, Heston Russell. So my mum had a crush on Charlton Heston. That's where my name came from, not from Perfect. Heston. Heston Blumenthal was 15 years old when I was born. So just to clear that up quickly, we're talking – Charlton Heston, Moses, Ben-Hur, all that good stuff. Pre-NRA sort of stuff. Mm, how uh, old are you now? Just I am 36. Oh, you're, my fucking shoes are 36. Um, so, But tell people who Charlton Heston was because there's a quite a – like, Tiff, do you know who he was? Nah. Exactly. Yeah, he was – you know, he was uh, – again, bad connotations, but he was a Tom Cruise of his days. He was, he was Ben-Hur. He was Moses in Moses. He was the original lead actor in Planet of the Apes. He mm. was the – male leading role movie star back in the days. He, uh, was, the, he was the goat, really, of, of <laughs> leading men and rock star, good-looking Hollywood superstars. He was maybe, if not the first, definitely one of the first, right? Yeah. I mean, back in the days, you know, where Ben-Hur was the real-life chariot, chariot racing scene where people died, he was the big blockbuster stuff back before there was CGI and everything else in between. Exactly. Before there were special and effects, you know, people used to actually get killed in the filming of m- movies, Tiff? No, no. Look, yeah. I just Googled Charlton Heston and he's no Patrick Swayze. Oh, come on, bro. Go back to his young stuff, he was. Definitely. Your mother and grandmother would have had a crush on him for <laughs> sure. Tell you what, they would have gone off like a frog in a sock, your mum and your grandmum. But, you know, there was a n- speaking of people dying in movies, here's some trivia no one needs. <laughs> there's a James Bond movie called Live and Let Die. Yeah. And there's a scene in that movie where a boat does a jump and it's the longest. It, so literally like off a ramp. And can you just double check this? Tiff, Live and Let Die, boat jump, uh, actor or driver dies. So the, the guy that did that stunt in the movie and they kept it in the movie actually died. Oh, wow. And they kept that. See, this got nothing to do with special forces or I being a fucking a warrior. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Look, and I grew up here in Brizzy, went to school here, got out, went down to Canberra for four years. When I joined the army, I went to the Defence Force Academy for three years, the Royal Military College for one, 
got my commission, became a lieutenant, uh, lieutenant, and went up to Townsville in an infantry battalion for three years where I deployed to East Timor for peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. And then in 2010, I completed selection into the commandos to become a beret qualified commando. And I spent the majority of my years there where I deployed to Afghanistan four times, Iraq, um, did a whole bunch of domestic counterterrorism stuff and stuff in the Asia Pacific region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I ended up coming back from my deployment to Iraq, moving over to the US to live with my at the time, secret boyfriend, and uh, ended up moving back to Australia when I brought a brand called Barry's Bootcamp over here to Australia and Singapore. And fast forward, um, lockdowns, breakdowns of relationships, my own sort of mental health decline, failing in my transition from the military. Mm. I sort of had my own mental health decline and suicidal ideation at the end of 2020. And ever since then, I've really sort of taken the torch to uh, the veteran welfare and support system, namely the Department of Veterans Affairs and a, a bunch of legislation which saw me campaign for the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide, which we won April last year, um, and, and then also step up uh, post the accusations of war crimes against special forces, just to make sure that you know we're actually focusing on the full story, uh, that those who do have things to answer for are actually gone taken to court, not trial by media. While the other 3,000 plus people who've been collectively punished um, weren't, weren't done so, and we campaigned and succeeded for a few things there. So I now run a charity and up here in Brizzy with my little three year old sausage dog, Copper. <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll get on to Tiff. What did you find? Well, I forgot, I forgot halfway through what I was Googling. <laughs> Don't worry about it. The moment's passed. Live and, let, live and let die, boat stunt, driver dies. Yeah. Right. Well, there's James a thousand videos, but I, don't, I haven't found any, you know. Uh, just right. live, and, live and let die, James Bond tragedy or something. You know, this really doesn't matter for the podcast, does it? But this is what we do, Heston. We just bloody, it's a little <laughs> bit Joe Rogan-esque. We just freestyle and we, we have a chat about anything. But all right, tell Copy. me about your secret yeah, boyfriend. Um, Hang on, tell me. I just want to, so that wasn't, ha, tell us about that. How was that so you obviously couldn't be out and open about that. No, no, no. So this is the whole thing. I mean, I've just spent the last two weeks going into hand-to-hand conflict over this lighting up the um, Shrine of Remembrance rainbow colours type stuff. I kept right. myself in the closet my whole military career. Right. I, uh, I, The best part about my career was that it focused on what we call the daily renewable contract. It focused on how you showed up and your competence and character as opposed to any other label that even now – you know, you just Google me and have a look at all the different labels, different outlets in the media try and put on me and people, um, you know, to define them by traits that we were born with, you know, um, differences, differences that shouldn't define us, but are used to define us because we like to understand things. So I kept myself in the closet because it was at a time I only first came comfortable with my sexuality in 2015 when I was 30 years old. I was actually living in the US for a year on exchange for their special forces. And it was the first time I got to see professional gay men who didn't wear their sexuality on their sleeve. I was Mm. in LA hanging out with Disney producers, you know, big tech people who I didn't know they were gay until someone else told me. And I got to see the difference between that and otherwise Oxford Street in Sydney, which is all I knew. All I knew was drag queens and midriffs. And Mm. I do celebrate that side. And I now understand that piece of that culture that needs Mm. people to put their identity on display when you've rejected or had people reject your identity. But yeah. I kept that to myself. I kept my personal life out of my work life. That's what made me perform better. And I never wanted anyone to judge me on anything other than how I performed and showed up each and every day. But wow. um, 
you know, it's fucking I, amazing, mate. So good, so good. I mean, well, that's congrats. like what was that? I mean, that moment that when was that? Two thousand and fifteen, where you yeah. decided to open that metaphoric door and walk through and go, da da. Hey, guess what? Give us a snapshot of that. Well, this is it. It was me becoming comfortable with who I was. I was in the US and my sister was actually living up in Banff, Canada, and I flew to her and she's the first person I told and love her. She's four years younger than me and she said, you know, as long as you're not doing anything illegal and not hurting anyone, why does it matter what you do? And she said, as long as you're okay. And, you know, she's just absolutely authentically amazing. Then I told mom and she cried because she wanted to have grandkids and I told her apparently you can still do that and then she's all happy again. But- (laughs) What I never did, I never came out. I never had a coming out. I told those who I wanted to because I felt like they needed to know because otherwise I didn't want them finding out via other people. Yes. But I kept it completely removed because, again, I didn't want it to be a consideration because when I got back to the US, Craig, this is when the whole gay marriage vote and plebiscite was going on. And yeah. society was looking for examples to use to be symbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Even within defence, we were looking to celebrate and raise up people who were different in this diversity. And oh, that was the last thing I wanted into the Defence Force. You are praised publicly based on your performance and to identify anyone on anything other than the way they perform in their role completely goes against our culture. The Defence culture is service, service before self, the team before self. You know, there is no individuality in that. There's individual excellence for the benefit of the team. And again, hence why a bunch of the sort of culture wars I've been fighting the last couple of weeks. Mm. Because I also appreciate in this space that, unfortunately, so much of this comes from trauma. You know, I know what it was like literally rejecting my own sexuality and not being comfortable with myself and how others have had that experience by others. And when people come from that place of trauma, it all depends who's around them once they reach that level of self-actualization, whether it turns into entitlement and a stick they use to beat others and get back their pound of flesh at. Or it turns into, which I was fortunate enough to now see it as a lens of responsibility. I have a responsibility to show people that I'm the same person, to encourage those who feel like they can't be themselves, but at all times to focus on that external purpose and that team before looking to progress myself based on something that I didn't choose, to be honest. Hey, mm. hell, good for you. And and so what, what's the, did you say that currently there's been a little bit of hoo-ha around the, the lighting up that was it the shrine in the city shrine, shrine of remembrance of, yeah the what, shrine. have you had to deal with a bit of bullshit in the last couple of weeks if so what was that yeah so there's this big the shrine of remembrance down there in melbourne so it was going to uh, publicly display the lgbt rainbow lights um on the external of the structure it's doing an internal um uh, display an internal um, year-long display on lgbtiqa plus people within their service but they want to do this big external um, signaling essentially. And uh, they didn't consult with any of the veteran community. The CEO of the shrine isn't a veteran himself. And they didn't consult with Victorian RSL. They didn't consult with, you know, many openly gay <laughs> veterans like myself who are out there in the media doing our thing. And um, a few of us just spoke up and said, hey, this isn't what we do. Uh, you know, this is virtue signaling. This is jumping on to a lot of these issues that are going on in society. And people immediately put up the walls saying, you know, you saying not to do that is homophobic. It's like, well, hold on. I'm a homophobic, <laughs> so settle down. What it isn't is it's not people understanding our culture. It's projecting society's culture onto the shrine of remembrance is there to commemorate service and sacrifice. And bullets and bombs do not discriminate. People do. 
and to individually identify people who served based on a demographic or a piece of them that has nothing to do with that responsibility, but comes down to entitlement and seeking personal example, uh, seek personal promotion, goes completely against our culture. And this is at a time where I will take up the fight on culture, left, right, and center, because if we don't fight for those values that we believe in, like what, what are we fighting for? How ironic. Well, firstly, that was incredibly well articulated. That was bloody amazing. Uh, but how ironic that, that you kind of get labeled homophobic. And you, did you go, hang on, what? Well, unfortunately, I've, I've even had my own run-ins with the heads of Mardi Gras and people like this who I've been told that I'm not gay enough to be seen as an adequate representation of the community. You know, I don't conform to the stereotype. You know, I'm, I come across as, quote, cis male heterosexual who's actually homosexual. And this is where I sit at people going, look, I'm Heston Russell and I am who I am each and every single day. You know, I'm sorry that I don't conform to uh, what you think, but I have that many closeted homosexual gay men reach out to me from militaries across the world saying how just seeing me being a normal person and wearing my labels with the responsibility, not entitlement, has made them feel so much more comfortable in them, in themselves, and not needing that public affirmation to make them feel accepted, which as we know in this day and age is what we actually need more young people to do, to not rely on external affirmation, but to be confident with who they are internally at an intrinsic level. Mm. How dare you not meet their expectations? How dare you not be how people think you should? Stop being yourself, you fucking rebel. Well, what I love is, Craig, I haven't even had a personal conversation with these people. It's all based off social media snippets. You know, that's the world we live in at the moment. It comes down to what people perceive your brand to be without taking the time to have a physical conversation. By the way, everyone, over 100 combat missions serving with the special forces. I mean... <laughs> I used to be cool. I tell people I used to be cool. <laughs> you know, I think you still wear the cool badge uh, pretty well. All right, let's talk about something else. Um, but I, so, so much respect for you being... Um, so transparent and great with all of that because we all need to, like, it's just nice to know how you think um, and not that the way you think is the only way people should think, but exactly. for you to know who you are and how you are and to have clarity about yourself and your identity and to be comfortable in that, I wish we were all that comfortable with whoever we are and how, how we are. Um, let's come, quickly jump in there, Craig. That's come, like I said, September August 2020, mate, I sat on my lounge after a whole period of, you know, de-escalating and living an inauthentic life to a point where I literally planned on how I wanted to take my own life in the service of so many other veterans who are experiencing this mental health and suicide crisis. And when you get to that point where, you know, I've been in 100 combat missions, I've had plenty of bad guys shoot at me and hit parts of my equipment and all this, but the closest I came to you know, being removed from this earth was by my own hand. And when you reach that point um, of extreme sort of self-rejection and get to that mental state of a place, you really start to, you really have the chance to sit there and do that self-assessment and go, you know, who I am, what do I stand for? What is the authentic version of me? Because everything else is causing all of these issues to snowball and progress further. And once you figure that out and again, do so through a lens of responsibility, not a, hey, this is me, fuck you all, but like, this is me and this is my responsibility. All the rest of it is, is a bit of white noise, mate, as long as you're working for the right reasons, which is helping others, in my opinion. Mate, what's it like being in the middle of combat when people are trying to kill you and people are shooting at you? I mean, apart from shit and terrifying, can you expand? The best time of my life. 
know, do you know, we had a guy on Tiff. What was his name recently? Oh. I shouldn't know his name. He said, you never feel, and he, he like you, combat a whole bunch of times and, and um, uh, similar space but different story. He said, you never feel more alive than when someone's trying to kill you. That's what he said. Absolutely. I, I give this talk on leadership. People want to talk about combat leadership. Combat leadership is the easiest form of leadership because there's immediate feedback. You know, if you don't do something, you're going to get shot. You, <laughs> make, the, you make the wrong move, it's going to hurt you or your team. You know, when you say easy, come on, bro. But, but I mean, that's look, that's what I've been trained to do. You know, my whole career was trained to do that. Imagine training for, you know, representational rugby and never getting to run on and play. I got to yeah. do that. And I got to do that with a team that I worked with, you know, 18 months beforehand. We were at this intuitive level of um, mental and emotional and physical connection to the way in which we conducted our operations. Mm. But, you know, career leadership is the hardest when there's so much more time for people to question decisions, you know. Combat leadership, you stuff up, someone gets killed. In your career leadership, you stuff up, it, it grows and slowly eats away like a toxic cancer. Mm. You know, and it's not that that purpose and that motivation isn't immediately there in front of you. Mm. You have to manufacture and generate and inspire people so much more. Um, I often say this, particularly the last couple of years of politics and everything else. I miss being overseas, mate, because everything is so practical and pragmatic and relevant. If I tell people, hey, I need an extra helicopter, otherwise we can't get our dudes out if someone gets injured, you get it. Yeah. You know, you're able to justify these things. You're not sitting there playing politics, you know, trading one thing for another. It's like, this is why we need this because this is the mission we need to achieve. And you literally are going out there with people who are risking their lives to achieve this. They believe in it that much. And you could just imagine that collective mindset and motivation that comes with that, as well as being able to do you know, what is a very masculine thing to do, you know, go out there and serve and protect and do all those sorts of things that, you know, require us to provide physical courage. And very rarely in modern society, do we ever get to show physical courage? It's that moral courage that we need. And once you are able to test yourself and test yourself with those you love to be around and have trained with, that, that level of, again, mate, the different levels of self-actualization, I've realized being able to go into combat on that one mission on that one deployment in 2012, you know, we flew 67 missions. We killed 117 bad guys. I killed my share of those. And none of that is to celebrate. It's finally being tested at doing the job you've been trained to do for the right reasons. And once you do that, it really provides a perspective that is now my responsibility to bring forward into everything else we do as well. Tiff? Nathan Bolton. Nathan Bolton. Episode 872, everyone. Jeez, you guys are busy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, eight seventy two. What what are we up to now? Eight ninety ish. Yeah, uh, yes ish. Yeah, we do one every day, mate. We're we're uh, we're a bit crazy. That's great. It's, we're it gives the mind engaged. Yeah, we're a three hundred and sixty five days of even Christmas Day, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. We put out episodes because we can. It's how we roll. Um, awesome. It's always interested me. I'm not really asking a question. I'm just thinking out loud about something and maybe you can roll off the back wet. Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated. Like we grow up in our culture where, uh, you know, thankfully now there's a focus on, you know, bullying and looking after people and, and keeping everyone safe and out of harm's way and don't hurt people and be kind and be thoughtful. And these are all great ideas and constructs and kind of guidance principles. But then you and your mates 
you get trained to kill people, understandably, because like it or not, that's fucking more. Yeah. And 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 so all of that kind of cultural and I guess in a way like moral and ethical and perhaps spiritual kind of principles that most of us grow up and don't hurt anyone and definitely then you have to kind of park that and then learn how to kill people. Is there, how does that work? Is there internal conflict? Is there like fucking don't la, 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 don't think about it? I don't know. What, how do you manage that? That's, that's a really good question. No one has ever actually asked me anything that sort of touches on that question. And I think it all comes down to purpose. So I've just saying you want a higher performance, you need a higher purpose. If you know why you're doing what you're doing for the right reasons, then all of that sort of fades into the white noise. And particularly in Afghanistan, I knew why we were deploying. I knew the mission we were doing. You know, mate, we go out into a target and we'd take fingerprints off things or we'd get someone's phone and, you know, we'd track down and capture or kill someone who'd manufactured and detonated an IED in a crowded marketplace and killed women and children, you know, the previous month or, you know, had built an IED that had killed one of our guys or an American guys. You know, we, we didn't just go out there indiscriminately getting people. It would take us a month, you know, or just at least a few weeks to develop and get all the intelligence together to justify these people as properly bad people that we needed to capture or kill. Fast forward through to, you know, my last deployment to Iraq, we were fighting ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, literally, the best way I can put it is the true manifestation of evil on this earth. I won't tell you some of the things they did to innocent women and children, but I've actually never felt more, dare I say it, righteous in actually going out there. And the most enjoyment I've ever taken from my career is taking the fight to those people who are trying to persecute, bully, and kill those who can't defend themselves. And being able to protect those who can't defend themselves is where so much of that moral authority essentially comes from to enable us to do that. And again, putting that purpose and your immediate team before yourself, mm. none of those situations sort of ever registered into a personal mental health or an emotional health aspect for me. And I've still to this day have absolutely zero issues with any of the combat and carnage I've seen. To be honest, I miss that all immersive and inspirational purpose and team, uh, if anything. You know, it's weird. I mean, that in loving, caring, compassionate way, Brother Heston. Uh, what's weird is that people like you perform great under pressure, but the average person or many average people don't perform really well under pressure. But then sometimes uh, people, not necessarily you, but sometimes people like you come back to mundanity, suburbia, where there's no war, there's no one trying to kill you, there's no immediate threat, and you take away the pressure and they're not as good as when they're under pressure. Yep. Is, is that right? That's where I struggled, mate. That's where I literally struggled in my own mental health. I struggled for relevance. I went from planning and coordinating gigantic missions, you know, doing, you know, no fail stuff through to waking up. And the biggest responsibility I had was taking my dog for a walk that day. That's where I struggled. And what I realized is I struggle without having a team. I struggle without having that purpose. I struggle without having responsibility. Mm. And People don't rise to the occasion, they fall to their level of training. I've been taught that time and time again. And before I deployed on my first trip to Afghanistan, I'd been through seven years of training in the army and 18 months worth of intensive training to do our job. Um, there's so much that goes into that. It's not like you're just thrown into battle in my role to go out there and do it. So um, everything else is, you know, that de-escalation and that mm. 
decompression from that. And that is, to be honest, where defence actually is really failing a lot of soldiers in that sort of transition from um, defence process. Is one of the challenges, before I ask this question, so you retired as you were a special forces major, is that correct? Yes. How old were you when you became a major? Uh, I was 31. Is that young? That seems really young. Yeah, I sort of, well, going to school here in Queensland, I graduated, I turned 17 in November and went right. And went straight down, and I passed selection as a 24-year-old. Um, I've, I've always been the sort of youngest in everything that I've done. I was the youngest in my platoon, but that's that's pretty much the absolute youngest you could physically be. Wow, amazing! Um, we talk a bit on the show about identity. Well, we talk more than a bit, but you know that sense of who am I and what what defines me and where do I get my sense of self from? Absolutely. You know, and when I was a fat, insecure kid, I had all this weight and then I lost weight. Then I used to, for a long time, we've spoken about this, I used to get my identity from what I look like, my body and my biceps and all that shit. And, you know, then it was kind of from my business. And yep. uh, when you're a soldier and you do what you do, it's kind of what you do is pretty much who you are to a level. Am I correct? Absolutely, mate. And that is where I've struggled my entire life. And so then... You're this special forces fucking literally trained killer who's done all, you know, gone over there to serve. By the way, thank you for your service. Gone over there and done all this incredible shit on our behalf, literally put your life on the line over 100 times. And then you come back and it's Wednesday and you're on the couch and you're not a soldier. And you're like, fuck, is it Netflix or is it a pizza or is it both? Is there a bit of that that goes? Well, this was, this was my struggles, Craig, and you've hit the nail on the head. The military is fantastic at grabbing people off the street and issuing them with a collective identity that makes you subordinate to your team and subordinate to the purpose. Mm. What they don't do is successfully reconstitute that individual identity when you leave and you leave a giant organization that is a not-for-profit, it is a for-purpose organization and throws you into a world which is arguably for-profit in employment at least, and you're unable to find that same level of personal satisfaction. Mm. And for me, mate, I left the military and threw myself headlong into my um, identity being a gay man, you know, finally being accepting myself and enjoying so much that I had deprived myself of. Like I fell in love. I'd never been in love throughout my personal career. And then society wants that to be your label. And I've made my relationship become literally my identity. And then when I lost that relationship for four years, I got sent back to that identity crisis. And what I've learned time and time again is it then comes down to the community you've built around you. Everything has to come back to those you surround yourselves that help you to either find your identity again or find your purpose. But everything does come back to who you are outside of any other label. And that's why you heard me say before, I finally reached the point where I understand that I am Heston Russell and I get back to that daily renewable contract. The day you rest on your laurels is the day you become irrelevant. But it's so hard in this society, mate. You know, before every interview, before every whatever, people are like, hey, how do you want us to refer to you? Hey, tell us about you. It's like, what parts? You know, I could stuff up tomorrow and my entire life's um, of successes mean absolutely nothing in this society that's just so short term focused at the moment. Um, and that's an opportunity, but it's a massive threat. And you feel like it's this inauthenticity piece, mate. When I when I transition to the to the gay version of me, yeah. everything, everything is measured by you know biceps, speedos at pool parties. What your yeah. last Instagram post is? You're comparing yourself to 
the last version of yourself. And that's where these layers of inauthenticity creep in. Social media is one of the worst things for it. Mm. And it's just cutting through all that and, you know, creating your own content based off what you're doing as opposed to just creating content for the sake of content. That's what sort of really helped me get back on the straight and narrow. Everyone that I talk to that's been in the military, there's, there's this, I, I suppose it was the same for you, but they seem to have this, this level of connection and trust and loyalty with their, you know, with their colleagues. Um, the tribe. With their tribe, thank you. Like this, there's this loyalty and trust and connection and I guess understanding that you can't get outside of the military. Is that a struggle? Well, it's when you've been through adversity with people. Yeah. You know, true bonds are formed when you're under pressure, be that yeah. physical pressure, be that, you know, out in the cold, shivering, feeling like you're going to freeze to death. You know, you form bonds with someone you're snuggling up to in the same sleeping bag. Mm. just don't have those same pressures, those same particularly physical and mental pressures on the outside that I've experienced during my time in service. Mm. A lot of people have gone through some of those personal, mental and emotional pressures during COVID, lockdown, feeling alone, isolated, everything else in between, but particularly that physicality and the endorphins and all the chemicals that go with going through that physical adversity together and you know, training and progressing and being like-minded with each other. You just don't find that on the outside because people's interactions are either within work, which is designed for a purpose, or outside socially where, you know, you're pulled in so many different directions. It's such a finite and focused and high-pressure sort of situation and those bonds are formed much faster and stronger. How did your tribe respond when you came out? Uh, well, again, so I never had a, a whole coming out thing and I just I gradually let people you know, I was just more liberal on my social media, essentially. Right. right. I, I made the rule that anyone who ever asked me, I'd tell them absolutely up front. And, you know, I actually attended a wedding with some of my old platoon guys that would sort of post all this. And the amount of guys who came up to me and just be like, dude, why the fuck didn't you tell us? Yeah. And it was from a place of we could only imagine what that was like for you holding yourself back. Like, we are so sorry that you didn't feel support enough to come out and be like that. And that's why I said, hey, no, no, stop. I'm the one who wasn't comfortable with me. They have been the most amazing people, particularly in the special forces side of the house. You know, you're performing at the elite level. And this is what I've realized. Mm. I was bringing 95, 96% of myself to everything that I was doing, but there was still, you know, that four or 5% of me that was holding myself back. And my yeah. regret is that I hadn't allowed myself to be fully 100% emotionally and mentally aligned to what I was doing. But that's, my own development phase. They've do you, th been do you think that if you had have um, come out to them, I don't know, earlier, I'm not, I don't know if this is, yeah. I'm not suggesting you should or shouldn't do anything, but could that have proven a distraction and maybe that's why you didn't do it or? Yeah, again, it was all timing. So I came back from the US at the end of 2015, fully mm. prepared to live an openly gay life. But again, who you sleep with and what your sexual preference is, is completely irrelevant to day-to-day -day within the military. 100%. It's such a high operationally focused unit that you're not sitting there going, oh, by the way, guys, I'm gay and like accept it. Like that, <laughs> again, goes against our entire culture. But the issue was that society was reaching in, looking for diversity for diversity's sake and also to progress those who were mm. diverse over those who weren't. Mm. 
at that same time I was dealing with, I was running the commando selection course. Yeah. We had just opened it up for women to finally be allowed to apply for the selection course. And I was told by our general that I was to reserve 10 positions for female candidates, mm. which, if, you know, for a selection course goes completely against everything. There is a standard and that standard comes from the operational requirement backcasting. And I did a, a, a public consultation with the other support staff females in our unit and they burned it down in flames. They said, don't you dare undermine our success by giving us a quota. We want to earn that off our own bat and particularly within that society. And that was that same sort of context. So for me, there was also that time and space relevance where it just wasn't the right time to do that publicly. But the biggest thing was, mate, I had to become comfortable with it first. Mm. It's only once we become comfortable with ourselves can you actually withstand if people can't tolerate or it's just something new for them to catch up on. Um, mate, and- when you think about it, it, it is, com- I mean, for 99% of you know what I do in my job, what you do in your job, what TIFF does, it, maybe even nearly, it's it's not relevant. Like I've never walked into a meeting or an environment or a workshop or a conference and and made a point to let anyone know that. By the way, um, I'm heterosexual. I just thought I'd put it out that like it's it's not a thing, is it? So you shouldn't need to feel on any way, I don't know, like required to open that door because it it doesn't really make any difference to what you do. And that's, that's my aspiration. You know, I said to one of my guys, he's like, hey, mate, why don't you just come out and like tell everyone about it? I'm like, mate, do you come out and tell people you're heterosexual? And he's like, no. I said, exactly. Why the fuck do I need to tell yeah. people my sexual preferences? And he just, you watched him. He sat back and went, oh, I don't know. It's just what everyone does. I said, why do they do it? Yeah. Because you why why do they do it? What's your take on that? It's it's a way in which they feel permission to, I guess, progress to that next level of self-acceptance for many, many people. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it is also a way in which many people use to gain attention and gain affirmation. Per our love languages, people need affirmation. They need to feel permission to be different because they're made to feel different. They're not sat down and taught, hey, you know, difference and diversity is actually empowerment, but you have to use it with responsibility, you know, particularly if it's not something you've earned, it's something you've been born with. My whole aspiration is for this just to be so normalized and we focus on the content and character of people, not, you know, their sexual preference, you know, religion, skin color, all these things. When when I was a kid, we were taught never judge a book by its cover, but all we do in society these days is put more and more labels on that cover and and make that the measure of the person. Yeah. Now, everyone, I've just looked at uh, Heston's uh, Insta page and Uh, (laughs) hang on, steady on champ. He's 900 people away. From a hundred thousand, he's ninety nine point one thousand. So jump on, follow, <laughs> follow the little fucker. Give him a bit of love. Send him a message and tell him he's ace because he's killing this podcast. Tell him how awesome he is. But most importantly, hit the follow. Hang on, I'm going to do it right now. Mate, yeah, I, mate, there, I was there's, a- there's you. Can you see the blue? Yeah, I can. There I'm we go. Right now, live. Follow. I'm officially, and I don't follow many people. I only follow about 200. Oh, wow. So you are now part of my tribe, whether or not you like it. Thank you, mate. I I was at, I was at 104,000 before the uh, election. And then I got shadow banned apparently. And I'm just dropping numbers every week. Really? Blue tick and all, mate. Like it means nothing. Let's you turn that around, peeps. Ah, let's, let's, go fucking, let's turn oh. the big steering wheel around. Um, all in the room. Okay, a couple of questions. So, Tell me, you came out of the military. Was it in fifteen? Uh, 
2017. 17. Yep. Okay, so five years ago. Now, this is a weird question, but coming out of the military, before you came out of the military, you were obviously had an idea in your mind of what that would be like. Yeah. So the idea of what it would be like post-military, give me a comparison with how it actually was. Compl- how was it different to what you expected? Um, two key things. One was, again, in the military, you're working for purpose, whereas on the outside, everything is based on profit. And there was a big sort of personal disconnect with that. I never had to do that before. And second was just the value set. So service within the military, and particularly where I was, came down to responsibility, selflessness, leadership, teamwork. They were those sort of core values, you know, courage, physical and moral courage. And then into the outside world, responsibility is replaced with entitlement. Mm. Selflessness is replaced is replaced with selfishness. Mm. You know, teamwork is replaced with doggy dog. Leadership is replaced with risk avoidance. You know, abdication, passing the buck. There's no accountability. All these things. And so I found that completely different. Um, and it's funny because even though you're in the military, you're still living in wider society, but your outside living is more dwelling before you go back into it, or at least it was for me. Mm. Uh, you know, there was really that rejection of those values. But unfortunately, what we're also trained to do so well is to assimilate into our new environment. And I found myself getting on that gravy train, becoming entitled, getting, you know, fixated on how I looked, um, going out to parties, you know, recreational drugs, all those things that are in society that, you know, we, we're drug tested every week on our special forces stuff, things like this. But you never taught, you never had those adult conversations like, hey, you're going to go out in Sydney and every person, every bathroom is going to be doing this stuff. Um, mm. And it's actually the worst thing for your mental health as opposed to, um, you know, just getting caught up in, in the short term um, existence of it. And it really was a struggle. And it was this whole collision of um, what we call this uh, moral injury or this dislocation from your values combined with being lonely, not having a team, not having a purpose that understood you at an intrinsic level with everything else being focused so extensively. Mm. And it was a whole new identity shift. Was there a, this is a dramatic question, but fuck it. Was there a grieving? Like when do you feel like there was a grief period because there, there was a loss or a sense of loss? I think particularly for me, I'd been operating at such a high and fast level that you know, it's the I call it the pendulum swing. You've got to swing away, and I really enjoyed that first year living in the U.S. Again, I'd never been personally in love or fulfilled my personal needs. I always focused on those professional, so I really loved and enjoyed that. But then, once that pendulum starts to swing back to its resting place, you sort of sit there going, "Well, this is all enjoyment, and I fulfilled that, but I'm actually missing that deeper level of purpose and value and giving back and service." I was missing that element of being able to serve, to put the needs of others before me. And that is where I have really struggled. And that's where I miss my tribe. That's where I drive past an army barracks and remember and wish I could drive on and go and do PT in the morning at 7.30, which is the time every base does PT. Mm. Just go join in a group and go do PT, go Mm. and be equal, go and be accountable. You, you You miss that. You really do miss that authenticity. And so as part of your mission, purpose, fill in the blank to create your own tribe? It is. And I'm, I struggle with that, mate. And I, you know, I have my, my meeting, my weekly meeting with my psychiatrist actually before having this chat. And now, well, if you're going to talk to a psych before you talk to me, that's a great time because I'm a fucking, I'm a handful. So well done. 
Yeah, my issue these days is, again, my love language is acts of service and I love doing things for people. So I continue to build relationships based on me being able to do things for them. And in in return, people keep coming to me looking for ways in which I can help them. But the way in which I feel love is actually quality time. People who want to be around me and be with me just for the sake of hanging out with you. Again, that's why I have a three-year-old dog. So I actually really struggle in forming those connections with people that aren't based off any form of service. Uh, and that's where, you know, I contemplate going back and, and joining a rugby team or joining a water polo team, finding that camaraderie where your actions are that which define you as opposed to, you know, anything you say or any perceptions otherwise. Um, it's tell- something I'm still working on and I really need to. Well, if you live down here and not up in the bloody tropics, you know, we could hang out. Um, Coming down there in November, we're putting together mate, a team. Hit me up, buddy. You and me, breakfast, arm wrestling, you know. <laughs> no, nah, no arm wrestling. I, re- you, I reckon you might have me. Um, oh, yeah. So as much or as little as you want to tell me about 2020 when you momentarily thought, fuck, do I want to be here anymore? Yep. Uh, so I, I literally had been at the day – at uh, the park at the day with my dog and came home. And I got a message from one of my former guys who told me that um, a, a person we knew um, who I deployed to Afghanistan with beforehand had tried to take his own life. He tried to overdose and he had his young son in the back room. And it was a, there was a long string of, I'd by that stage known more guys who'd taken their own lives than we'd lost in combat. And there were so many factors going on I was in 18 months worth of a fight with the Department of Veterans Affairs. I was alone. I was suffering from depression and anxiety that I, you know, refused to ever see a psychologist or admit any weakness as opposed to vulnerability. And it took me to a place where I just sort of sat down and applied every ounce of my professional planning skills to pull apart what was going on. And the scariest part is I had the sharpest moment of clarity I've had I'd had in, you know, three or four years where every ounce of me decided that what I needed to do was to be the next veteran to take their own life. I needed to write a letter to, you know, Senator Lambie, who I'd connected with and all of this in order to, and I, at this stage I had, you know, 75,000 followers on social media and I'd been on the news a couple of times supporting veteran things. And, you know, I was this picture of biceps and Barry's boot camp and all this stuff as well. I needed to use my profile to be that next veteran suicide that would finally get cut through because I was, um, you know, when people say this, I was one of those people that no one would have ever expected it to sort of happen to. I wasn't sitting there drinking myself into misery. I was, you know, excelling at the top of my performance. And, uh, you know, for that five or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it was, I was sitting there so clear and set on my mission and purpose. And it really helped me appreciate and understand that suicide can just happen like that. You know, it can just take that mental shift where you literally think you are doing the right thing. And um, wow. my, my, as, as the story goes, my dog came and literally put his head on my lap. It was my time to feed him. Uh, and as I've realized for me, it was that service. Someone else needed something of me that sort of actually snapped me out of that moment. I sat there and I read the email that I'd written and all of this and just went, what the fuck are you doing? You idiot. Why are you outsourcing this cut through? Why not get out there and be that voice yourself? And, that was that. Well, mate, we're very glad you made that decision. And um, what's your dog's name? Copper. Copper, like the colour, like the metal. Copper. Yeah. Well, thank God. Is it is it a he? 
Yeah, he, he's a good well, boy. Well, thank God he came over and interrupted you, bloody the yeah. rabbit hole that you were going down. Thank goodness for him and thank goodness. Um, all right, now tell us about um, Voice of a Veteran. What is it? What do you do? How does it work? How can we help if we can? Yeah, so Voice of a Veteran actually just ended up being a podcast and a social brand that I started up to start talking about my own mental health decline. I then even then needed a platform that wasn't me talking directly, talking from a platform as a veteran and just took off when me telling my mental health story really started to help so many other alpha masculine males and then very strong other females step forward and say, hey, you know, I now have permission to acknowledge that I've been struggling. Mm. And part of it has then been making sure that the continuation of that journey for them is through a lens of responsibility, not entitlement, because so many of my problems came from, again, outsourcing all of my problem solving to departments, agencies, politicians, and it's about getting back to solving those problems yourself. Um, that led us to campaign for the Royal Commission, and I've then set up the charity Veteran Support Force. It's The website is vsf.org.au, mm. where we are a charity organisation and we support veterans and their families during uh, the current Royal Commission. We do projects, we do surveys, we've done some um, campaigning up to government, we do community activities, we support veterans who want to engage with the Royal Commission. And off that, that is where I find my projects with purpose back for the community of my people. So if anyone wants to get involved, head to vsf.org.au. Um, and otherwise, it's whatever else comes a- across my table that I find purpose doing and, and jump on board. Awesome. Do you, vsf.org.au, yeah. is this your, um, and I mean, I know this is your purpose and your passion, but is this also your career? Do you do corporate stuff? Do you do, like, how do you make a buck? Yeah. So that's been, and to be honest, I've only actually had to start looking at that. So I did the lead up um, into politics, which was unsuccessful uh, this year. Uh, And up until that time, I'd just been sort of living off savings that I squirreled away, very conscientious throughout my career. So I'm actually at that point where BSF stuff is all voluntary. Mm. What I do do to earn a buck is I go in and do corporate speaking. I give a a speech on leadership. My website, hestonrussell.com is where most people go to get info on that. But Corporate speaking, workshops, even helping out recruiters select people, that's the stuff I love. Anything to do with people and teams and particularly leadership is my number one topic because no amount of technology um, or you know outsourcing innovation is going to help that. It comes down to people and purpose and motivation. Yeah. So that's how I earn a buck. And uh, what do you do for fun, mate? Do you still train? Do you still lift heavy shit? Are you still jacked? I can only see you from the kind of the chest up, but you look like a fucking hell, <laughs> mate. I uh, that shit away. He just uh, flexed. Uh, I'm getting, I'm getting back into it. You know, particularly uh, after the campaign, I actually let myself go. You know, my mental and physical health sort of went by the wayside. That sort of happens with those hyper periods. But yeah, I try and get to the gym every day. I really enjoy going to the gym and working out. Um, yeah. I uh, enjoy a bit of sort of group fitness. And um, to be honest, I've spent the last two years so focused on the purpose side of the house, campaigning for those things we spoke about, and then the politics piece, mm. that the rest of this year is actually focusing on me. I actually got a contract to write a book on my own memoir last year, and it's finally due to get published by the end of this year. So that's been a real um, passion project as well. But I'm in the the rebuild and refocus phase, and um, that's it. Fitness is such a huge part of that. Fitness and nutrition that I need to get back to, absolutely. 
Well, mate, when you come to Melbourne, we'll lift some heavy shit as well as have a coffee. Um, it's oh. really good to meet. Really good to meet you. Great to chat to you. What you're doing is awesome. Thanks for sharing some of your story with us. Um, and maybe we'll get you back again. I reckon there's a lot more we could uh, unpack. Well, thanks for letting me chat, Craig. Thanks for letting me have. I call these my mental fitness sessions. So thanks for just letting me have that chat with you. And there we go, mate. You've got them, eh? Come on, son. There you go. Elusive. I like it. Um, uh, Heston Russell, uh, voice of a veteran. Is that the name of the podcast? Uh, it's it's now just called the Heston Russell podcast. Heston Russell, Russell podcast and uh, vsf.org.au. Tiff, very good scouting by you. Good job, Tiff. Pretty happy. Thanks, Heston. Thanks, Harps. <laughs> I feel like you might be uh, on roll with the punches soon and you might be back at TYP. We'll talk in a minute. But uh, for the minute... Uh, thanks everyone. Heston, uh, thanks so much. We appreciate you. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Tiff. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heston Russell Voice of a Veteran podcast. Remember, if you haven't subscribed already, head to hestonrussell.com and get on the list to stay up to date with new episode releases, other campaigns, and all sorts of information coming your way. Otherwise, you can follow me day to day on my social media. Instagram is the preference at Heston Russell. And if you are a veteran or a veteran family member who needs support with any services, please reach out and connect with the team from my charity, Veteran Support Force at vsf.org.au. Otherwise, thanks for listening and look forward to the next episode. See ya.